about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified. What is mankind that you are mindful of them, the son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I, and the children of God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might take atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, who share in their heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. This is the word of God. Hello again. How about we pray to get started? Oh, Father, we ask as we consider your word that you would open our eyes to your son, that we would see him as he actually is and not as we imagine him. And we pray this for his glory. Amen. We are into our second week of our series, 
uh, on, whoop, uh, on the book of Hebrews. <laughs> That's a very distracting slide. Um, and last week, uh, we thought about how the book of Hebrews in the New Testament is a letter that we don't know the author of, nor do we know who it's addressed to. Uh, it reads a bit like a speech, but it reads like a speech that's been written down a bit like a letter. So that's all a bit confusing, uh, but the reality is that as you walk through the book, you get a, a very clear idea about who the Hebrews are. First of all, they're called Hebrews because they're of Jewish origin. They know everything about the Old Testament, and they seem to be tempted to go back to Judaism and leave behind their Christian faith. We also learn that they're very tired, they're weary, their knees are getting weak as they walk on in their faith, and they are under immense pressure and persecution. Now, we saw last week that the way the writer addresses all these problems is in a a way we wouldn't expect, maybe. The problem that they go after is the vision of Jesus that the Hebrews have. In chapter 1, you're slammed with this magnificent cosmic view of the eternal Son of God, the creator, the sustainer, the purifier of all things, who's infinitely superior to angels, not just a spiritual being among spiritual beings, but God's Son, the exact radiance of His glory, the representation of His being. It's a beautiful big picture of Jesus that we get. That's what we're slammed up against as we begin Hebrews. Chapter 2 moves a bit differently, though. In chapter 2... We're forced to consider the humanity of Jesus. And we start to realize that maybe our problem with the Lord Jesus is that actually uh, we kind of don't see him quite in his divinity, nor quite in his his humanity. Instead, get this kind of average ad hoc buddy Jesus. You know, he's still wearing robes, so he's kind of otherworldly, but he has your back, right? Uh, You know, this kind of plastic Jesus, he's not quite human, but he's not really divine. He's not the eternal son. And so we end up with this kind of plastic, useless Jesus in our vision. And so last week we go after his divinity, and this week we go after the fullness of his humanity. And the the task is to hold them together in tension rather than trying to get an average. Now, one film uh, that really presses the humanity of Jesus is the 1988 film, The Last Temptation of Christ. If you've seen it, you should go watch it if you haven't. A really fascinating film that uh, is still banned in Chile, I've been told today, uh, and was picketed when it was uh, first shown in Sydney. It depicts Jesus going to the cross and on the cross being tempted by the devil to leave behind his mission and instead to take up a family and become just a normal guy in society and and most of the film is taken up with a dream sequence where Jesus imagines himself settling down. It's a very provocative film. It's a work of art. It's very inaccurate, but it's a great work of art <laughs> because it presses on us how human we really think Jesus of Nazareth was. Whether he was just a plastic paper thin kind of human or whether he really was, could, could he be tempted to settle down? Get a wife, have some kids, have a career, enjoy his twilight years and some retirement. Could you tempt Jesus with that? It's a very provocative question. And so we want to walk through today with that kind of question in mind. How human was Jesus and why does it matter? So I've got four things about Jesus and his humanity for you today. Then I'll let the scripture tell us how to respond to it. The first one is this. Jesus, the eternal son, lowered himself to become our pioneer. 
Jesus lowered himself to become our pioneer. Chapter 2, verse 5. It's not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him. Now, we, we kind of take off where we left off last week, angels and Jesus. Jesus superior to angels. And we're told, well, actually, to no angel did God ever say, I will subject to you the world to come. But then we have the problem of verse 8, that in the life of Jesus that we have seen and known, everything was not subject to him. And right now, as we live and breathe, at present, we do not see everything subject to him. So what's with that? What the writer does to help us make sense of this conundrum is take up Psalm 8, a beautiful psalm about what it means to be human. And questioning why on earth God would care for such flimsy, flaky nothings like us. Except the writer takes up Psalm 8 and says, this is actually a psalm about Jesus. And uses it to tell the story of his life. Jesus became a little lower than the angels, though superior to them. Suffered death and then was crowned with honor and glory. And now everything has been put under his feet or everything will be put under his feet. Psalm 8 is kind of the way you could tell the story of Jesus Christ. It's not that he is lower than angels, but that he became lower than the angels for a little while and is now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. You see, Jesus lowers himself for the sake of God's grace toward us us. What does that mean? Verse 10, in bringing us and many sons and daughters to glory. It was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. I love that word pioneer. Uh, You probably think of Captain Cook or Columbus or someone trailblazing through the wilderness, finding the first path, the first person to break a way through. Jesus is the one who lowers himself to pioneer for our salvation. And the reality is that to pioneer salvation for us, he has to take on flesh and suffer. Without suffering, Without dying, he cannot pioneer a way through death. Jesus lowered himself. That's why it says he became perfect through what he suffered, because the eternal Son of God cannot pioneer a way for salvation, cannot break through death unless he becomes someone able to die. And so he has to lower himself and suffer, and then he is perfect for the task of being our pioneer. Jesus Christ lowered himself, the eternal Son, the radiance of God's glory, suffering to save us, tasting death for us, God's graciousness to us despite ourselves. That's the first thing. Jesus lowers himself that he might become our pioneer. But the second thing blows my mind. I can't get over it. And that's that Jesus is not ashamed to call us family. Jesus is not ashamed to call us family. In verse 11, it says, Both 
the one who makes people holy, that's Jesus. He makes people holy. He, ma- he sanctifies them, brings them to God. And those who are made holy, that's us, right? We need to be made holy by God. Are of the same family? So Jesus is not ashamed to call them, to call us, brothers and sisters. This is a mind-blowing, mind-blowing thought. He unpacks it a little bit with the, with the Old Testament references. One's from Psalm 22, the other from Isaiah 8. In Psalm 22, there's a faithful sufferer who goes through death and, and expects to come out triumphant and, and at the end will declare the name of God to brothers and sisters. And in Isaiah 8, there's a voice who trusts God and then in the verse after them is surrounded with children that God gives them. In both passages, one faithful person ends up with a family. And the picture is that Jesus, in pioneering for us a way through death, takes us on as family. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, is not ashamed to call you a brother, to call you a sister. This is crazy. You know that there's a person in your family, the black sheep, who no one talks about? You know that person. You know I'm talking about. I think if I was part of Jesus' family, I probably should be that person. The person who he probably should be ashamed to be associated with. Shame is a really complicated thing, I think. And the shame I feel in my own life is kind of a melding of a whole bunch of different things. It comes from things I've done that I'm ashamed to tell others and I'm ashamed before God that I have done. It comes from things that have happened in my life that I can't control. Um, some of them I can't even point to, but it just leave me feeling unacceptable. It's people who I've had contact with who make me feel less. And shame is that deep sense through things you've done and things that have happened that you are just unacceptable. Maybe someone's, a voice in your life's told you that or something, some sin just, You can't shake. Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call you a brother or sister. The eternal son. See, this changes your life when it really drops. See, the only way to deal with shame is through being honored. And there is no greater honor than the eternal son of God making you part of his family. You know, surely the shameful words that a colleague can throw at you for your faith, or a voice from the past, or any sin that you've committed, the shame that's stuck on you from those things, when you look to the one who is not ashamed, who came down from heaven to pioneer you into his family, when the honor of that drops, shame stops sticking. Jesus is not ashamed to call you family. Because thirdly, Jesus took on our flesh to take on our death. Jesus took on our flesh to take on our death. We read in verse 10, in, uh, no, in verse 14, Since the children, that's us, have flesh and blood, He too shared in their humanity so that by His death, 
he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. You see, the purpose of Jesus becoming human, taking on flesh and blood, is to take on our death. That's the thing that comes straight after that statement, so that by his death, and I expect the next sentence to be, so that by his death we might live, or so that by his death, our death is dealt with. But he goes and talks about the devil and how Jesus' death breaks the devil's power. Now, let's be clear. The devil doesn't hold the power of death. That's God's. Death is judgment from God upon sin. But the devil does want you dead. And so he tempts us into sin and therefore has power over us. But Jesus, by dying, by tasting death for us, as it says in verse 9, breaks the one thing that he has. And so we're free from him. Free from the devil. Free from his power. Because Jesus has pioneered and defeated death through his death. But not only that, the passage goes on. And to free those from the fear of death. There's a sense in verse 15 in which we are so afraid of death as humans that it forces us into a slavery, probably towards sin. In the context of the devil and all the other things happening in that verse. Which is a really strange idea. And you don't find modern people really articulating much fear of death in their lives. A lot of people I hear talk about death is natural, it just happens. Uh, But the same people who can't really say death in a sentence. Who talk about people passing. We really keep those who are dying far from anywhere we can see in public. Our fear of death is very real. And I think it drives our life, as it says in verse 15. This is Adonis from the movie Creed. I haven't seen the second one. But let's be honest, these movies are just rocky, rocky remakes, right, to make money. But... Uh, in, in this movie, this movie is driven by Adonis and um, by his boxing career. And uh, the whole tension in the film is really why Adonis is boxing at all. His father died in the ring. And so it doesn't really make sense that his whole life is about boxing. And so you see him through the whole movie and he doesn't really give an explanation for what is driving him. But then you get to the, 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 the final moment, the Rocky scene, right? He's losing. Big surprise. Uh, and Rocky's talking to him. And he should give up, but he's not. And Rocky says, well, why aren't you giving up? Why not just pack it in? Why not just give it up? And he says between breaths, I have to prove myself. Rocky says, prove what? That I am not an accident. And in the context of the story, it's about being an illegitimate son. But in the context of our modern age, it's a picture of our worldview. The People who come from nothing and are going to nothing. The blips between. Trying to prove by our attempts to make a mark and make a difference and to climb the ladder and to, to make a legacy and to, ha- to have children, to have descendants, to, to make ourselves and our brief existence not an accident blip in time. Our culture is still driven in slavery to the fear of death. I see this worldview in books all the time. My friend wrote a a young adult novel, and I was terrified to see it in there because 
This is the, our worldview. This is what we, we see. The, the character says there, I will die and there'll be no return. My body will dissolve and I know that death is inevitable, but I'm not ready for it yet. If I believed in something beyond this world, maybe I could clinch at it like a rope, but I don't. All I see after this life is cold, infinite darkness. You boil it down and that's our worldview. And it drives us to work ourselves to death, to cosmetic ourselves to death, all kinds of things. But Jesus, by his death, by breaking the, pa- the one who holds the power of death, frees us from slavery to the fear of death. You do not have to live like your culture. Because Jesus has pioneered through death, breaking the devil along the way. Jesus took on flesh to take on our death. But finally, Jesus became like us, ultimately, and this is the the summit of the passage, to become our high priest. Jesus became fully like us to become our high priest. In verse 16, for surely it's not angels that he helps, but Abraham's descendants, the descendants of God's promises. And for this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. See, human in every way, and what's the result? He becomes a high priest. A high priest in the Old Testament came between the people and God. They were the ones you could go to to deal with your sin so that God's wrath wouldn't fall on you. They were the mediators of God's blessing. And so they became between the two. And Jesus is the ultimate high priest because he is the eternal son who is fully human in every way. In him, humanity and divinity are bridged He is our eternal high priest, as we'll see through the rest of Hebrews. Merciful and faithful, two words describing the God of the old covenant. This perfect high priest, Jesus. And having been this high priest, he can make atonement for us. His death on the cross turns God's wrath away from our sin. As the high priest believed the blood of calves and lambs would also. He can deal with our sin finally and completely, leading us to glory, making us part of the family of God without shame. But even more than that, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus, because he was human in every way, knows what it's like to want to sin. Can we say that? There's this really awkward scene in the, uh, the Last Temptation of Christ in the film. The most awkward scene in the whole movie is all the stuff around Mary, Mag- Mary Magdalene, Magdalene. And there's this scene where uh, he goes to see Mary because they're friends. Uh, and while he's going to see her, he has to wait outside because other men are coming to see her because she's a prostitute. And you see him awkwardly standing outside the door for a while as these men come in and out. And he eventually walks off. But you're left with this very awkward question of, how is Jesus feeling standing at that door? Does he feel tempted to walk in? How human was he? 
Was he really human in every way? Was he, did he suffer when he was tempted? Was he really tempted like me? Friends, we have a high priest who knows what it's like to be pressured to want to walk away and yet to be obedient, yet to walk in God's purposes. We have someone who, when we come to him with our failing again, is not ashamed of us, will atone for our sin by his death, and can actually mercifully help us when we're tempted. He is a merciful and faithful high priest precisely because of the fullness of his humanity. And friends, if you're not coming to him, you are going to somewhere else. Rather than coming to him with your sin, you're drowning your sin. Or you're trying to make up for it through the other things you do in life, like your work and your good deeds. When Jesus isn't your high priest, something else always will be. You'll lean on something else to deal with temptation or flood it away. on something else to deal with your sin. But friends, what we need to do is to come to him in our temptation and with our sin. Knowing that he understands us, is not ashamed of us, and is a faithful high priest who has atoned for us. Jesus, our high priest, has broken through death, broken the power of the devil, is not ashamed of us, has atoned for our sin, and gets our temptation. There is no greater place to turn than him. He lowered himself to become our pioneer. He's not ashamed to call us family. He took on our flesh to take on our death. And he has become our high priest because he's like us in every way. And so the author concludes, and I'll conclude, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling through Jesus, your pioneer, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him. You see, the author draws the Hebrews not to their failed faithfulness, but to Jesus' fulfilled faithfulness. Not to look at their sin, but to look at their high priest. Not to look at their temptations, but to look onto him who has already conquered and pioneered away. You see, friends, when you fix your attention on him in the fullness of his humanity, you find a way beyond pressure and weariness and through temptation and sin. You know, the movie uh, Last Temptation of Christ is based on this book. And it's really interesting reading the preface to the book and the experience of the author as he wrote it. He said having to contemplate the humanity of Jesus made him appreciate Jesus especially. He said, I never felt the blood of Christ fall drop by drop into my heart with so much sweetness and so much pain. When you look on the one who was fully human as you were, who walked through temptation as you do, who did not disobey, who atoned for your sin on the cross, when you see him, the eternal son who lowered himself to do that, that's when faith grows in your heart and love for him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this vision of our Lord Jesus that you give us in 
in Hebrews. And we, we just, we pray, we, we turn aside from the, the half-cast, half-ridden Jesus that fills our imagination. And we want to be filled and have our hearts fixed on this eternal Son who lowered Himself to deal with the devil and death and sin and temptation and shame for us, to call us and lead us to glory. Oh, Father, we approach Him in the midst of our temptations and with our sins, confident of His faithfulness and mercy. We pray in His name. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.